Anybody been watching the NBA playoffs, NBA finals? Nobody? Bueller? Nobody cares about the NBA anymore. Um, if I'm being honest, I'm not a huge, typically a huge NBA fan. Um, I thought that that was maybe what was going to happen, um, that, that the NBA illustration was going to fall on its face. But this year, I've been really enjoying it. And part of the reason I've been enjoying it um, is because there's this team that is a massive underdog, um, even though they've been pretty much the best team all year. Um, and this is, this is the team, the Denver Nuggets. And uh, for those of you who have not hopped on the bandwagon, you have an opportunity to hop on the good guy side. You can jump on this bandwagon because really you, you'll, you'll come across as like you knew something. They're, oh, yeah, there's secret sauce. Everyone was underestimating them. I knew all along, even if you don't watch the NBA. Um, but there's this thing that the Denver Nuggets have and it's uh, arguably, they have arguably the best player in the world, okay? A lot of people are kind of disputing that. But one of the big things, besides having arguably the best player in the world, what they really have is this it factor. They have this uh, uncanny ability to, despite whatever anyone says from the outside, they know exactly who they are. And uh, I, I jumped on the Denver Nuggets bandwagon because I actually am, I am somewhat of a Denver Nuggets or a Denver sports fan um, the one team that I, ha I follow, uh, for better or for worse, which has mostly been for worse as of late, is the Denver Broncos. I'm a Denver Broncos fan. And despite literally the worst season I, I've ever witnessed in my lifetime uh, this last year, and who knows, probably more of the same this year, uh, I'm opening myself up to a ton of criticism here by, by letting you know that I'm a Denver Broncos fan. Um, but no matter how bad the Denver Broncos are, there's something that I can pretty much always count on. And what that is, if you, if you follow sports specifically in the AFC West, what you know is that no matter how bad the Broncos are, the Chargers are going to find a way to mess things up. And I, I was going to lump the Raiders in, but I know there's at least a couple Raiders fans in here, and that's kind of true. Raiders have at least had some success. Chargers literally have never been successful. The years where they've been most successful, they've still found a way to mess it all up. In fact, I don't know, I didn't look up any stats on this, but I, I, I watch a lot of AFC West games because I care about it. Unfortunately, I'm mostly watching the Chiefs win because they're the big market team, and unfortunately, I don't get to watch them lose anymore. I'm just thankful I don't, I used to live in Missouri, I'm just thankful I don't live in Missouri so I don't have to put up with, with uh, the, 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 the annoying Chiefs fans. Actually, one of my best friends here at New Life is actually a Chiefs fan, and Chuck told me, informed me just the other day, we've all kind of known this about him, but that he's actually a closeted uh, a Chiefs fan. Um, I think, I call that a bandwagoner, but, you know, he, whatever, he, he's like, you know, I've just kind of kept it a secret. Well, I'm like, well, that's some secret you're keeping, the best team in the world that, that you secretly like them. Um. The Chargers, chronically, they'll, they'll be up, I can't tell you, especially under, under, Phil, under the helm of Philip Rivers. Philip Rivers would, uh, like, all the time, throw, like, five touchdowns in the first half. They'd be up double digits, in some cases, 20, 30 points. And I'm telling you, like clockwork, they would find a way, in the biggest games, they would find a way to lose it. They would lose in overtime, or they would. Philip Rivers would throw five touchdowns the first half, and he'd throw seven interceptions the second half. It's just, it's just what happened. And I, I, I think that part of the phenomenon with the Chargers is that, and and that really good, all good teams know who they are at the core of. At the end of the day, no matter what adversity they face, they know who they are, and they come into the game knowing that we may get down, but at the end of the day, we are who we are. And you know that that famous line: "They are who we thought they were." right? That's the best teams. They know who they are. The worst teams, 
they either have no idea who they are or what they do is at the end, they're like winning and they're like, wait a second, we're the Chargers. It's time for us to lose. We don't win. We, we lose. Um, so if you're a Chargers fan in here, I'm sorry, I'm just ripping on them today. But the, the harsh reality is this is not just a truth in sports, that this is a, a reality in the church. This is a reality in our lives. And there's really one of two ways that most of us in the church, when we, when we face adversity, when we, when we see kind of the way that the world is, um, it does, in a, in a weird way, have a way of uniting us. But at the same time, um, when we stand firm and we stick together, we stick to the game plan like the best teams, and we remember who, that we're on the winning team. Remember this, this saying that Pastor Chuck uses that I, he stole, I think, from Chip Ingram. He didn't steal it, but he, he uses it from Chip Ingram, this, this mantra that we fight from victory, not for victory. When we remember that we're already on the winning team, then the church is the church that God has called it to be. But when we don't do that, and this happens, when we don't do that, what actually happens is we play down to the level of our competition. We lower the bar. We lower the standard. And the question that we pose is, why does this happen? Why, why does this happen? And so uh, we, I, I, it's going to be on your screen, but if you want to turn to uh, James chapter 4, uh, verse 1, we're going to read actually verses 1 through 12, and then we're going to kind of break it down together. Um, so if you follow along with me on the screen, James starts by asking this very question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so what James is establishing right from the bat is that problems don't just come from the outside, and specifically with the church. When the church, it, we, we, we know, we can stand on the promise that if attacks come from the outside, that there's victory. That, that no matter what we face, we're going to have victory in that. But what James is saying here is that those problems, although we need to be ready for those problems, they're not the ones we really need to worry about. The real problems are the problems that start from within. And, uh, and this, is, this is really, uh, uh, the, uh, really what it's doing is it's pointing to just a thing of human nature. I've got a little story. I've got two little boys uh, for some of you. Um, who maybe saw the Mother's Day video. My, my oldest, we're really proud of him. He's the one that loves his mom and bunnies. Um, or he loves his mom because he loves bunnies. I don't know what it, logic. 
uh, what his logic is. But my oldest is, he's almost three years old. He'll be three in July. And then my youngest is uh, almost nine months old, Augie. And uh, Emmett loves Augie, and Augie really loves Emmett. And part of the, uh, Augie loves Emmett just because he likes him. He just thinks he's awesome. Emmett likes Augie because Emmett never had a punching bag before he had his brother Augie. And uh, so uh, what really Emmett likes to do is he likes to beat up Augie. He likes to push him. He likes to kick him. He likes to hit, on, hit him. He likes to lay on him. And uh, most of the time, you know, we try to keep an eye on this as best as we can. But there are a lot of times, uh, because we're horrible parents, that we'll be doing something and all of a sudden we'll hear a cry. Um, and we, it's, a, you know, it's a high enough octave. We know it's not Emmett. Um, that uh, Augie's crying somewhere in a room. So then we quick rush in there. And most of the time, I will say, we usually catch Emmett in the act. He's not very smart. Uh, he's usually, you know, got a blanket wrapped up over August, laying on top of him. Um, he'll be just sitting there kicking him or punching him or something like that. But occasionally what will happen is we'll come in and there's a bit of what you, what you might call a crime scene. Uh, you've got Augie who's laying maybe kind of half holding on to Emmett's bunk bed, laying on the ground, and he's crying and he's red in the face, and Emmett is over in the other corner. You come into to the room and Emmett's just standing there and he just kind of locks eyes with you and he's just kind of looking at you like that. Like. And I then, you know, use my investigative skills to try to get to the bottom of what's going on here. I, I look at Emmett and I'm like, what'd you do? And the first words out of Emmett... <laughs> So what really happened was uh, I shoved Augie on the ground because he had my book. I ripped it from him. That caused him to fall and roll over. And then I proceeded to beat him uh, with the book. And now I stand here before you um, uh, being guilty of uh, attempted murder. But the, what this does is this establishes Emmett's not very old. And he, he always, uh, he's, he's always been a bit of a talker. He's talked, he talked from a pretty young age. And pretty much as soon as he started talking, and really this is true for all of us, pretty much as soon as we start talking, we are capable of, of blaming. And really what we do is we start blaming everybody else for our problems. Do we not? We like to believe that the problems exclusively exist outside of ourselves. And this is a really common thing in the church uh, that, that we see that there's this tendency to want to blame everything on Satan. There's, there's this kind of effort. We want to blame everything on the devil, everything bad that happens, when in reality... There's nothing more capable of wreaking havoc in our life than our own hearts, our own selfish desires. And so this is really something that we all struggle with. And this is really what James is getting at. James says the problems aren't Bob and, and Jill. It's not, the problem isn't that guy who, who uh, sings so loud and off-key during service. The problem is not that guy who has to get in the last word at every Bible study. The problem is not your annoying coworker who just brings the morale of the, of the office down. The problem is your own heart. And so James, is what, what he does in this passage is he actually breaks down exactly, walks us through how relationships go south, how relationships break apart, how our unity is completely dissolved. And so we've got three things that are going to pop up on your screen for you note takers. You can kind of write these down. But the first thing that we see 
um, that causes relationships to break down. It starts when we choose ourselves over others. So relationships fail when we choose ourselves over others. And really what this is, is this is idolatry. I, I, uh, um, there's a couple of quotes I want to share with you. R.C. Sproul, who's a theologian and a pastor, shared uh, this quote about idolatry. He said, The most basic sin found in the world is idolatry. Every sin that you committed in your life, you can trace it back to a false god or a false idol that, that you have elevated above God in your life. And the philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote, There's nothing so abominable in the eye of God and of men as idolatry, whereby men render to the creature that honor which is due only to the Creator. So essentially what we do, idolatry is very rarely just doing something that's bad. It is something bad, but rarely is it like we make an idol of, you know, whatever, smoking cigarettes or whatever, you know, something that's like, for the most part, you know, we're just like, yeah, you don't do that, you don't do that, you don't do that. But what it is, is it's we, when we take something that's good, something that God intended for his glory, something that he intended for our enjoyment, and we elevate it above God. We worship the creation rather than the creator. In full confession, this a lot of times in the church, uh, we struggle with this because we have a lot of good things. We worship things uh, that maybe the world doesn't worship as much. We worship things like family. Um, a full confession, as a pastor, there is always this temptation, and I know Pastor Chuck and myself and Pastor Micah and everybody that's on staff here that, that makes vocational ministry something that's central in their life runs the risk of making ministry an idol. Yes, even ministry can become an idol in your life. So the first is that we choose ourselves over others. Sometimes we even do... Uh, in the name of doing something for others, we're really doing something for ourselves. The second is that communication breaks down. And we see this in verse 3. We see this in verse 3 where he says, uh, where are we at? Boom, boom, boom. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. And before that, in verse 2, he actually says, you do not have because you don't ask. I have a hard time believing that it's a coincidence that in John chapter 17, when Jesus, right before he's taken into captivity, he's betrayed and then eventually you know, put on trial and, and, then, and then crucified for your sins and for my sins. I have a hard time believing that when he's meeting with the Father and he's sweating blood, that it's a coincidence, that it's just a coincidence that his prayer, when he's, when he's praying and he's asking for the cup to be taken away, in John chapter 17 we see that Jesus prays that we would be one that the church would be one in this time where he's about to go and lose his life, when he's about to go and be beaten beyond recognition, he's so stressed out, he's sweating blood, he thinks of us. He thinks of you and he thinks of me and he prays, Father, would they be one just as you and I are one? It's an amazing prayer. It's an incredible prayer. And I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the first casualties when we break that prayer, when we break unity, that communication ceases with God. That the very act, what Jesus is doing is he's praying to the Father. We no longer turn to the Father. We no longer turn to God. Communication shuts down, ultimately, because we believe that we're self-sufficient. We, we don't ask God. He says here, we don't ask God because we know we won't receive. Well, why would we know that we're not going to receive? We don't pray and ask God because we know that the thing that we want, the thing that we desire is messed up. We know it's sinful. We know it's wrong. And so what we do is we justify it by, by leveling out sin, we create these, we create these 
these kind of hierarchies of sin. It's like, well, yes, I'm going to indulge in this, but you know, at least, you know, my kids, at least they're not doing this. At least they're not, you know, whatever it is. Look at the world, and, and this is what we do. We lower the bar. When we look at culture, when culture is as jacked up as it is right now, it's really easy. Like, the standard's pretty low right now. Can we agree with that? The standard of being a, a good person or a good Christian is pretty low. It's pretty low. And so what we know, like in all bad relationships, all relationships that go south, the second thing that happens, one of the primary things that happens is communication breaks down. And ultimately what it does is it just ceases altogether. This applies to marriages all the time. When, when you fight, and I'm not saying, fights are not always holy in marriages. In fact, a lot of times fights get pretty unholy, um, especially if Christ isn't at the center. If you're not, if, if because we're idol factories, our hearts are idol factories, we get in fights a lot of times that are not very holy. But I will say this, nothing is worse. Nothing, nothing spells out an, uh, an ending relationship or relationship that's over like no communication. Once you lose the will to fight in your relationship, you know that there's some problems. No communication means no relationship. And the third thing that happens when, when, uh, when relationships go south, when they fail, is that we form new friendships. Now the truth is, as priorities shift in our lives, so do our friendships. This is just a reality of life. I, I spend a lot of time with high schoolers, as many of you know, um, as I spend a lot of time with high schoolers, um, I hear a lot of stories, you know, about like, oh, so-and-so, you know, like we used to be best friends and now we're not best friends anymore and it seems like we're just drifting apart. Well, part of that is there's, there's a practical side of life. Uh, when, when, as kids grow up, and really this happens as adults too, as kids grow up in high school, the, ho- the higher they get in their grade, the more responsibilities they take on. And the more resp- responsibilities they take on, the less time they have for other things. And so what ends up happening is they form new friendship groups. They form friends around the things that they do. And in in fact, when uh, in in verse 4, when James is talking about, don't you know that friendship makes you an enemy with God? Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. He's pointing to a reality of friendship. In in James chapter 4, the word that's translated to friendship, in the Greek, it's it's phileo. It's it's the word, um, the root word that we get the word philosophy from. It's also translated as love or to love. And so the word philosophy means phileo, sophia. It's philosophy. It means the love of wisdom. And so uh, C.S. Lewis actually kind of breaks down. The one thing that's difficult about the, the, the English language is that we've got this word love. And in reality, there's a ton of different meanings. We know this, right? A lot. It could mean, love could mean that you really have a strong feeling. Love could mean that you're married to someone. Love could mean that you really like football. It could mean a lot of different things. A lot of different things. But right here, what James is talking about, he's, it's translated as friendship. And so C.S. Lewis in his book on the four loves talks about friendship, and he makes a, he makes a distinction. He says that friendship, as opposed to uh, eros, which is where, where, where we get the idea of erotic love, it's where we get the idea of a marriage love, Erotic love is when two people are standing face to face, when they're absorbed in one another, okay? Friendship looks more like standing side by side, locked arms. And you're locked arms because you're focused on a goal. You're focused on something else. And in fact, this is C.S. Lewis, actually, he kind of riffs on people. Um, He talks about people who always, who sit around and what they want is friends. People who want friends and all they want in life is friends never have friends. You know why? Because that's, you, don't, you don't get friends to have friends. You have friends because they're connected to something else. 
You have buddies that you work out with. You have buddies that you watch the game with. You have friends that you, that you play golf with. You ha- you, your hobbies um, build friendships. Friendships are built on something and facing towards something. But James doesn't just stop there with this idea of friendship. He actually, he, he relates friendship and then actually at the beginning of verse 4, he compares it to adultery. And so what he shows us is that friendship with the world actually leads to adultery. And at first glance, it maybe can look like what he's really talking about. He's like, well, he's talking about murder. He's talking about coveting. He's talking about all these different sins. And so, you know, he's talking obviously about adultery that's taking place in the church. And although there very well may have been adultery that was taking place in the church, in fact, we know for a fact, based on some of the writings of Paul, that adultery was rampant in the church, just like it's rampant today in the church. But this isn't what he's talking about. He's not talking about uh, these, these uh, adulterous relationships with one another. He he's actually calls us all adulteresses. And so what he's really saying is every single one of us, he's saying, you're all prostitutes. You're all prostituting yourself to these other false gods. And so what he's, what he's doing is he's drawing, James is drawing attention to the fact that we are the bride of Christ. The Bible routinely talks about adultery when referring to God's people. In fact, this is the sin that consistently, consistently over time, Israel is guilty of. God is constantly calling Israel out and sending them into captivity as a result of their adultery, their spiritual adultery. I had the privilege of of, uh, doing a wedding just a couple days ago um, with a couple of really close friends out at their, uh, was actually their grandparents or our grandparents' lake cabin. It was beautiful. It was very hot. Um, very, very hot, and so we kept it nice, short, and sweet, and then we had ice cream not too long afterwards to try to cool off. But uh, I, I shared this, I, I heard this in a sermon, but any time, really, adultery happens because we become unhappy in our marriages. And so this, this, ver- this thing translates very much to our relationship with the Lord. When we become unhappy or dissatisfied with our relationship with God, we feel like he's not holding up his end of the bargain. We turn to lesser loves. And so I encourage this couple that anytime you think your marriage is bad, just remember that Jesus has the marriage from hell. No matter how, literally, Jesus has the marriage from hell. No matter how bad your marriage may get, it is no, it, it pales in comparison. It has no status with the marriage that Jesus has inherited. His bride, he's coming for a pure bride, but we know if you, if you belong to this church, or whether you're online or you're in this room, if you really truly belong to a church, you know that the church is all sorts of messed up at times. Amen? The church struggles. <laughs> and James goes, takes it one step further, and he doesn't just say that God's angry, that he's furious with us because of our, our adultery. What he actually says is that, he, he says in verse 5, or do you suppose... It is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. We get this image of a, of a jealous, a jealous husband. We get this image of, of someone who, who desires us. That despite the, the, the messing up and, and consistent spiritual adultery in our life, that he still wants us. He still wants us. And uh, I've got kind of a dumb story, um, but it kind of relates. It's, it's, definitely, it's definitely like G-rated story. I've been friends with my wife for a long time. We actually just, we were talking about it uh, yesterday or a couple days ago. We met for the first time when she was 12 years old and I was 
14. And, uh, and so we grew up together. We went to the same church, same youth group. Um, just as I'm hoping that some of, you know, our kids, I don't know if any of them will end up getting married. Maybe a couple. You know, we'll see. But, uh, but I, uh, I, I, from a pretty early age, um, I was pretty interested in Kendra. Um, and I really, just her family in general, they're a lot of fun. And uh, they have some really nice four-wheelers and a pretty big basement. So, and, I, and they had a really big TV at the time. This was before, like, you know, you could go buy an 85-inch TV for 20 bucks at Walmart. Um, so this was a big deal. Super Bowl parties were a must at their house. And uh, once I got to college, I really, I really started to be like, you know what, that's, Kendra's the one that I've kind of had my eyes set on. And, and so I would kind of work things to try to hang out at their house and get to know her and a little bit more and kind of, you know, like, you know, wear a tight shirt. You know, at the time, muscle tees were still kind of in. I didn't have much for muscles, but, you know, I was like, if it's tight, then maybe it makes my muscles look better. Trust me, it doesn't make your muscles look bigger. Big muscles make big muscles look bigger. Um, but we were sitting around playing cards, and, and things were going pretty good. You know, I had some, I had some good jokes, and I was kind of cracking on. I was getting the group to kind of laugh, and I was like, man, maybe this will work out this time. And Kendra, I, she was kind of whispering to one of her, one of her sisters, and and I could tell that there was kind of like, she was kind of feeling awkward a little bit. And she, she kind of, we'd hit a lull in the game. She looked over at me and she's like, I got kind of an awkward question. And I was like, oh, awkward like, you want to go get coffee tomorrow or something like that? You want to you wanna go like rollerblade, you know, or something like that? And uh, she's like, I was at a wedding the other day. So I'm like, oh, she's thinking wedding. That's cool. Um, and she was like, yeah, I was at a wedding the other day, and I think I, there was this guy there, and my heart immediately sank. I'm like, oh, no. She's like, there was this guy there, and I'm pretty sure that you know him, um, and like maybe played on basket, a basketball team, traveling team with him, and turns out I did, and not only did I play, this kid was from Winter. Uh, uh, I have quite a few friends from Winter that I'd play on a traveling basketball team with, and uh, this, this guy was cool, for one thing, um, and two, he was really good looking. And, uh, and uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that he was good looking because I, I thought he was good looking. But every girl in my school, the high school that I grew up in, they were obsessed with this guy. I'd never heard the end of this guy. And, uh, and so it was annoying. Like, I had already built up this resentment in my heart towards this guy. And then I met him, and he was really cool and nice. And I was like, oh, why you gotta, why you got to do me like that? And uh, so Kendra's like, is he a good guy? You know, like, what do you, what do you think about him? And so uh, my heart was just like shattered into, and this was probably my second or third. I had about four attempts um, at a relationship with Kendra where I was kind of trying to lay the Mac down. And needless to say, it didn't work out that time. At, at the end of uh, the day, you know, I, I got the girl, so yay. Um, the good guy won. Uh, but, but this is a, just a taste. I'm sure that you guys probably have stories similar to this. Um, this is just a taste of what it maybe feels like and definitely what it feels like. Some of you have more baggage, serious baggage. Some of you have been cheated on. Some of you have walked through some serious, serious relational baggage with infidelity. And the pang that I felt <laughs> rejected by this girl that I had my eyes set on, it's exactly how James is framing how God feels, that he yearns jealously for us, that he wants the relationship to work out. He's not looking, he's not sitting around wanting to zap us, that he desires us. And yet, despite that desire, we choose time and time again to go for idols. We choose idols and creation over the one true creator. And in verse 6, he concludes, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And really, this is the crux of everything that 
that James is talking about in this passage. You see, there's a reality, and the reality is that pride divides. You know, it's, it's ironic as I was reading through this. I, I genuinely, I can tell you, I forget every single year that June is Pride Month, um, but as long as it's been Pride Month, I guess. And so it always sneaks up. Um, but it's, I'm telling you, I didn't plan this with, with this passage in James. I guarantee you, Pastor Rodney, I know for a fact he wasn't thinking eight weeks ahead. I know that, okay? For any of you that know Rodney, you also know that he wasn't planning eight weeks ahead, okay? But the Spirit kind of works this way sometimes, and I don't think it's a coincidence that in this passage we see that ultimately the root of all of the division in the church, the root of all of the problems that we see is a result of pride. See, pride has no power to unite. It only has the power to divide. There's nothing unifying about pride. It was pride that shattered the entire cosmos. It was pride that led Adam and Eve to take that fruit initially, to take that bite, and it changed everything in the universe. Cosmic shift. It was pride that separated us from God's presence. We were barred from the Garden of Eden. And it was because of pride that Jesus hung on a cross and was beaten beyond recognition so that pride no longer ruled in the human heart. Pride does not unite. Pride only divides. And so we're left here, prideful hearts, idolatrous hearts. So what do we do? Well, James offers, uh, offers a solution. And in verse seven, 7, he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James is calling us to repentance. James is calling us to humble self-examination. There's nothing pretty about repentance. But what we know is in verse 10 that there's a promise that if we humble ourselves, if we repent, that we will be exalted. That there's hope. That there's eternity at stake. And this brings us to our last point today. And we're going to close with a little bit of a, uh, a unique, in a unique way. Today is Communion Sunday, and so we're going to take communion together. Um, right now, as we're kind of transitioning, uh, I, don't want your, I don't want to break concentration too much, but if you want to grab your communion elements now, they're in a basket. They should be on your left side. You can grab those. But today we're just going to take it, communion a little bit slower. We're going, to, we're going to focus in on what we're actually doing. But what we see, and this should be the last point that pops up on your screen, is that ultimately there is no unity, there's no union in the church without communion. There is no union without communion. The solution to disunity is communion with God. James doesn't say then, what he doesn't start. At the very end, in the last couple of verses, James spent some time talking about don't, you know, how, we, how this plays out practically, how we ought to treat each other. And really, a lot of the book of James is spent on this idea of not just professing a faith, but possessing a faith. And so James, is, he's, he, he does lay out how we ought to treat one another, but he, he starts with this idea of the heart. And the, the reason is because he knows that we can't just change things externally and expect the real problems to change. When we just try to treat other people nicely and then we don't deal with the real problem, the root of the problem, which is our heart, we're dealing with the symptoms, but we're not treating the sickness. So what we're going to do is we're going to zoom out 
Now I'm going to turn real quick. We're going to actually go to 1 Corinthians. And the reason we're going to do this is not because we want to be confusing and jump all over the Bible, but the reason we want to do this is because the church, I don't know if you've ever heard this idea. Uh, anyone, when, when the church gets, they hear of church dysfunction, maybe they hear about a pastor that fell or whatever it is. Anyone ever maybe even been guilty of saying this? Like, man, we just got to get back to the early church. We just got to keep things simple. We got to get back to the way that the early church was doing, doing ministry. Well, the truth is, the early church was just as messed up as we are, if not more messed up. And in fact, if it wasn't so messed up, we wouldn't have gotten half of the letters. We wouldn't have half of the New Testament, probably more, if the church wasn't so dysfunctional. And in fact, I heard one pastor say it this, put it this way, all you have to do to believe that the early church had it figured out better than we do today is have a bad memory and a really good imagination. That's all you need. But what but the reason we're turning to, to um, chapter 11, and that's where we're actually in verse 17, is Paul is laying out in verse 17 this idea that the church is totally jacked up. And he actually attributes, he connects a lot of its, its problems with this, this uh, basically messing up the Lord's Supper. Okay, so the Lord's Supper, I know we just take communion elements, right? We've just got this little packet here. It's got a really stale cracker and, and some supposedly non-alcoholic juice. I don't, this, if it's old, as old as I think it is, there might actually be a little fermentation, so be careful. Um, that's a joke, it's not. But, uh, but we, take, we take just a, 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 small, a small representation of the meal, but back in the early church, they actually shared a meal together. They actually shared a meal. And uh, this meal uh, was at the end, just like we're going to celebrate today, communion, the Lord's Supper. It was celebrated at the end. And there was all sorts of problems. What was happening was people were eating the meal, and then they would leave as soon as the meal was over because they didn't want to have to deal with so-and-so. They didn't want to have to see that person or deal with the, the dysfunction of how messed up that person is. And what we also saw was, was people, there was also, um, when they would share communion, the rich would bring more because they had more that they could provide and they held everything in common. So the rich would bring more of the food and the poor didn't bring as much. And what they ended, what would end up doing is the, the rich felt more entitled to more of the food. So then they would eat. And Paul actually talks about how some of them were filling their bellies and they were leaving literally the service drunk. And some of the other people, the poorer people, were leaving with empty stomachs. And the harsh reality is we see this same thing. Even though we don't share a full meal all the time, we're going to do it at the block party, but even though this isn't a full meal, this same kind of dysfunction exists in the church today. There's people probably in this service or watching online right now, and the same goes for second service, that probably go to this service and maybe even switch to this service or switch to the second service or started watching online because there's somebody that goes to new life that they can't stand. There's somebody that they're avoiding. There's somebody that they don't want to see. And so they get their worship in still, but then they completely, they disconnect from, they disengage from the body of Christ. We see the same thing play out with the rich consuming more of the food. You know, people who maybe give more in the church feel more entitled to the, the time of the pastor. It's like, well, I've done this or I've given this. And so you better make sure, you better not be giving too much time to these people. These guys over here, they're just, you know, they're not doing anything. They're just, they're just consumers. When in reality, you're just as much of a consumer because what you're seeing is your giving is not an act of worship. Your giving is leverage. I'm guilty of this. We're all guilty of this. 
And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, or actually it's 27, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This isn't just a reminder of what Jesus did, although it is. That ultimately, when we consume, we, you know, we talk about a believer's communion, and I'm going to ask you when we take communion to stand up in just a minute, you can just stay there. The worship team's going to come back out here, and we're going to sing our closing song as we close. But ultimately, communion isn't just this individual act or expression of worship. This isn't just a time where you, you are saying to God, yes, I love you and I trust you, and so that's why I take this communion. I remember what we're actually doing is we are partaking in a meal. Communion is not an individual act. It is a community act. It takes place in the church. This is something that only can happen in the church. And so as we take communion today, I don't want you to just reflect. There's no such thing as a sinner uh, taking communion in the sense that we're all sinners, right? We, the only thing that gives us merit to take partake in the body of Christ is the fact that we are covered by the blood. The very blood that we're drinking, the blood of the new covenant, the body that was broken, makes us righteous in his eyes. There's nothing that you've done to earn communion with God. But some of you in this room may be harboring bitterness towards somebody here. And the bottom line is this. You can't take communion if you're harboring bitterness towards a brother or a sister. And in fact, really what it's saying is that you don't actually believe the gospel. If you are actively harboring bitterness or you are harboring a grudge towards somebody in the church, even outside of the church, you do not understand the gospel. Because Christ, while being sinless, died for those who were sinners. That despite our fallen nature, Christ steps in and he purchases us with his blood. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to take communion together as we close this thing out and we we sing our last song. But Paul actually talks about this. He says, Lord Jesus, uh, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we take the bread. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. And so we take the cup. So Jesus, right now, we thank you for the shed blood. God, we confess and we, we quiet our hearts and we humbly self-reflect just on how messed up we truly are. And God, it's not just the outside world that needs saving. It's not just the outside world that is so messed up, God. Our hearts are so messed up. Who can know the heart? So Jesus, we just ask that your spirit would convict our hearts today, that this act of communion wouldn't just be a motion that we go through, that this act of communion wouldn't just be an individual expression of your love, but what it would actually be is it would be a community act where we come together and we are the body of Christ. 
we are your hands and feet in this world, this broken and fallen world. And so we, God, we ask that you would help us to remember, would you reattach the members of our body? Would you remember us and would you gird us up so that we can effectively be a witness? God, we're not just, we're not just called to be a witness because of, of based on these, these eloquent arguments that we have, but God, you actually show us, Jesus, you show us in, in John chapter 17 that the thing that really separates us from the world is our unity. The testimony, the most effective and powerful testimony of the gospel is our unity, our oneness with you. And so God, we pray in this time, in this moment as we close out today. God, would you make us one with you? Would you convict us of sin? God, we confess our sins, we lay them at your feet. And we thank you for the forgiveness that only comes through you, Jesus. We pray this all in your name and everybody said, amen.